It's the 26th of April 1999 in Fulham, southwest London. Jill Dando, a 37-year-old television presenter and golden girl of the BBC, has just arrived back at the house shows in Gowan Avenue. She doesn't spend much time at her house these days, favouring her fiancé's home a few miles away in Chiswick. Though she no longer lives here, she visits occasionally to collect mail, change clothes and check on the property. It's a crisp spring day and Dando is feeling happy and settled despite a busy schedule ahead of her, a photo shoot followed by a fitting for a wedding dress. Parking her car in its usual spot, she steps out onto the street and heads into the front garden of her house. The garden is shielded from the road by a large hedge. In fact, the hedge was part of the reason Jill liked the house in the first place. It offers a certain amount of privacy from the street outside. As a presenter of the National Evening News, as well as the face of two primetime shows, she's a well-known celebrity, so privacy is something she craves. It's ironic, then, that her much-loved hedge is shielding a very sinister presence from the street. As she reaches her doorstep and opens her bag to take out her front door keys, she feels a strong, heavy hand on her arm. Before she knows what's happening, her arm is twisted up behind her and she's forced to the ground. She feels the cold metal of a gun barrel pressed to her head and screams once before the gun fires and everything goes black. 14 minutes later, a local resident is making her way down Gowan Avenue. She knows Jill and hasn't seen much of her recently. Noticing Jill's car on the street outside, she crosses the road deliberately and stops outside her house, hoping to see her friend. What she finds there shocks her to the bone. As she looks into the small front yard, she sees what looks like Jill slumped on the ground on her own doorstep. Her heart stops. She approaches tentatively, calling Jill's name. There's no response, but she can see a lot of blood. She immediately calls the emergency services, telling them she fears a woman has been stabbed. The call handler asks her to check if the woman is breathing. As she steps closer, peering at the horrific scene in front of her, she says, No, I think she might be dead. She adds, confidentially, I think it's Jill Dando. The murder of the UK's most famous female will shock the entire nation and will become one of the largest and most challenging investigations to be faced by the detectives of Scotland Yard. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history.
there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. The police are first to arrive on the scene and hurry through the gate to examine the victim. It becomes clear very quickly that Jill has been shot rather than stabbed, which comes as a surprise. Gun crime in London is usually the preserve of gangs, so the shooting of a woman on her own doorstep on a wealthy suburban street in broad daylight is shocking, even to the police. Given that the victim is a celebrity, it is understandable, perhaps, that there is a degree of confusion and panic among the first responders. Preserving forensic evidence at the scene doesn't seem to be high on the attending officer's list. Paramedics arrive soon after the police, shortly followed by the air ambulance helicopter. Jill is removed to nearby Charing Cross Hospital. Sadly, it's already too late for her. At 1.03 p.m., Jill Dando, the face of the BBC, is pronounced dead. Given the high-profile nature of both the attack and the victim, The case passes immediately to the homicide team at Scotland Yard. The murder inquiry is named Operation Oxborough and will go on to be the country's largest criminal investigation since the hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper. Led by Detective Chief Inspector Hamish Campbell, the team know they will come under enormous press and public scrutiny. The country is already reeling in shock. For the first few days of the investigation, Almost entire editions of the major newspapers are dedicated to the incident, all filled with speculation and intrigue. Initial inquiries show that Jill had no known enemies and was loved by both friends, family and the public at large. So who killed this vibrant, much-loved television presenter in the prime of her career? And why? Perhaps the clues lay in her past. Born in Western Supermare in North Somerset on the 9th of November 1961, Jill always wanted to be a reporter. She began her career in 1980 as a journalist at a local newspaper, The Western Mercury. In 1987, she landed a role as a local reporter on BBC Southwest. A year later, she moved to the BBC's National Current Affairs team in London, where she quickly became a household name presenting the breakfast and the six o'clock editions of the news. Her career broadened in the mid-90s when she became the face of two hit shows for the BBC, the travel show Holiday and the popular primetime series 
Crime Watch, which explored unsolved crimes in the UK, appealing to the public for information. It was a down-to-earth charm, which made her particularly popular with millions of viewers. She was even scheduled to be the lead presenter of the Millennium Celebrations as the year rolled into 2000. By the time of her death, not only was she in the prime of her career, Jill was the happiest she'd ever been in her personal life. She had recently announced her engagement to Dr. Alan Farthing, a gynecologist she'd met on a blind date and fallen for immediately. They were due to be married in September 1999, and Jill talked openly about her desire to start a family. Who could possibly want to take all of that away from her? A stalker, perhaps? Or a jealous former lover? Police begin their investigation by looking at Jill's movements immediately before her shooting. London is fairly well covered with CCTV, and following her journey to Gowan Avenue might yield a clue as to who killed her. On the 26th of April 1999, having spent the night at Alan Farthing's home in Chiswick as she usually did, Jill left at about eight in the morning. She made a few stops on her way to her own house. She called in at a petrol station, a shopping mall in Hammersmith, and a fishmonger on the high street close to her house. It was around 11.30 when she arrived in Gowan Avenue, a quiet, leafy suburban street in the well-to-do borough of Fulham. Family houses, where most people were out at work during the day, meant that the road was invariably quiet. As Jill approached her front door, she was completely unaware that somebody was watching every move she made, and they were about to take her life in a ruthless murder. Not from a distance, not from a passing car, but up close and very personal. The first problem the investigating officers face is the lack of forensic evidence at the scene. The medical teams attending, in their desperation to do anything they could to save Jill's life, trampled through any trace evidence that might have been retrieved. Anything forensic officers picked up could as easily have come from the paramedics as the killer. Her body was also removed before the forensic team arrived, meaning they only had witness testimony from the attending officers as to what position she had been found in. Even if the first responders had preserved the scene as they found it, there wouldn't have been a lot to go on. The killer left almost no trace of even having been there. All police have is the single bullet which ended Jill's life. A Remington brand cartridge, the type used by a rare 9mm semi-automatic Browning pistol. Exactly the kind of gun favoured by drug dealers and professional criminals. Had she perhaps angered some of the criminal underworld through her work on the Crime Watch program, resulting in a contract on her head? The bullet has some distinctive crimping on it, suggesting it had been tampered with. But to what effect? The police are hopeful that the distinctive marks on the bullet might link to another case and lead to a breakthrough. While their only piece of physical evidence is in the lab undergoing tests, a search of the Gowan Avenue and the surrounding roads is mounted. Some 50 officers painstakingly scour every hedge, yard and drive. They also search the pathways through the nearby park and the banks of the River Thames below. Sewers, drains, bushes and bins are all thoroughly searched. It's a time-consuming, meticulous process. But, frustratingly, no additional evidence is recovered. 
with little to work with on the forensic side, the police focus on potential witnesses. Jill's immediate neighbour tells them that he heard a scream coming from Jill's house, but he thought it sounded more like someone had just been surprised as a prank. When he looked out the window, he saw a man walking casually away from Jill's garden. Because of his relaxed demeanour, the neighbour assumed he must be a friend of Jill's. The description he gives is of a man in his early 40s with dark hair. It's not a lot to go on, and unfortunately, despite thorough canvassing of the area, it turns out to be the only actual sighting of the possible killer. A couple of other witnesses mentioned seeing a man sweating heavily at the bus stop, as though nervous. A further account is recorded of a perspiring man walking further down the road. Had he been hurrying away from the scene of the crime? All of these descriptions are too vague, though, to be of any use. Despite the shot being fired in a residential area in broad daylight, there is not a single eyewitness to the actual event. The detectives know that an early lead is essential in catching the killer. They're already feeling frustrated that they don't have anything concrete to work with. One theory is that Jill might have been killed by a stalker who objected to her recent engagement. If that's the case, was she followed home? Since she visited Gowan Avenue so infrequently, it seems illogical that her attacker was simply waiting there for her. They couldn't have known when or if she would come back. Her small team spends hours going through CCTV footage from 191 cameras along her route home, including every stop she made. The only conclusion they can reach at the end of the task is that she was not followed home. Her killer may still be an obsessive, but they weren't physically stalking her that day. Yet again, their theory dries up. Detectives have been hoping to find a person to identify, but they have nothing. In a sadly ironic twist, police turned to the television show Jill Dando had presented, Crime Watch, to call for any piece of information, no matter how small, from the public. Her colleagues on the show, especially co-presenter Nick Ross, must feel her loss keenly. The sense of responsibility on them and the show to find results is palpable. The public response is incredible, and the instant room is inundated with potential leads. This leads to the investigating team's next problem, where to start. Whenever a case is opened up to the public, a lot of crank calls invariably filter in. The real task is trying to find the good leads among all the noise. And when the victim is as high profile as this one, the job is a hundred times harder. It would only take one of these tips to blow the investigation wide open. They've just got to weed out the false leads. And that is going to take time. As the inquiry continues, on the 21st of May 1999, Jill Dando's funeral takes place in Clarence Park Baptist Church in Western Supermare. Thousands of mourners line the streets to watch her coffin go by. With their best-loved presenter laid to rest, the people are desperate to know what happened. The police team is doing everything it can, but they still have almost nothing to go on. As well as the stalker theory, Scotland Yard investigates the possibility that Jill's murder was a retaliation from a criminal or gang that had been brought down after a crime watch appeal. The theory is quickly abandoned, though. Why would a criminal gangster go for the presenter of the show that received a tip-off? 
rather than the person who phoned it in. Despite trawling through lists of people convicted during her time presenting on Crime Watch, no names really present themselves as potential suspects. Some of the team still think that her shooting bears the hallmarks of a professional assassination. So if it wasn't a criminal with a grudge against the presenter of the show that brought them down, who could have ordered her killing? Forensic experts identify that the markings on the bullets are similar to some seen coming from Serbia. A theory is floated that perhaps Jill's murder is a tit-for-tat revenge killing after NATO forces bombed the main television center in Belgrade in April 1999. The explosion killed Serbia's most famous presenter. Was this a direct strike back? Scotland Yard thinks the theory is simply too far-fetched. Despite an offer of £150,000 reward and a plea for information from known informants, they have not a single shred of evidence that Jill's death was the work of either the criminal underworld or an international assassin. Instead, detectives are growing more convinced that her death is the result of a disorganised stranger killer. All of which leaves the team still doggedly working through the mountain of testimony they received in the early days of the investigation. Now favouring the idea that her killer is a stalker with obsessive tendencies, they try to whittle the list of names down to people who fit the profile. Again, this produces a far longer list of names than in a usual murder case. Of all the mysteries in the world, perhaps the greatest is, when will it all end? Or rather, how? Hi listeners, it's Richard and Molly from the Spotify original from ParCast, Unexplained Mysteries. With the end of the year approaching, Unexplained Mysteries is taking a closer look at some of the most infamous end-of-the-world scenarios in a five-part doomsday special you do not want to miss. Throughout the month of December, discover the many ways people have prophesized our demise, from a religious apocalypse and an alien invasion to threats from space and nuclear warfare. We'll even explore how advancements in technology could be our undoing. Do any of us have anything to truly be scared of? Therein lies the mystery. Listen to the Unexplained Mysteries five-part doomsday special, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Like many celebrities, Jill Dando attracted a great deal of attention. Not all of it positive. One man they find tried to take over her telephone account allowing him access to her number and the numbers she called. Another tried to acquire her gas, electricity and water accounts. Yet another had hundreds of pictures of her stored on his computer. On and on it goes, the list growing all the time. Police find 150 people 
out of the 4,000 they looked at, who have what could only be described as an unhealthy interest in the TV presenter. The problem is that none of those 150 people seem to have taken the fixation too far. At best, they could be called obsessives, but that's a far cry from murder. In May 2000, with the Millennium Festivities past and the first anniversary of Jill Dando's death fast approaching, the Scotland Yard team have identified and excluded around 2,000 potential suspects for the murder. Weeding out the real culprit from such a long list is a slow, painstaking, and often thankless task. Still frustrated, the team decides to change tack. Sure, they must have missed something, they start going back over the statements taken in those early calls, shortly after Jill's murder. And it is during this process that they finally come up with a name that might bear fruit. Detective Constable John Gallagher finds the transcript of a call about a man called Barry Bulsara. The information had come from a local drop-in centre for disabled people, very close to the scene of the shooting. In it, the informant claimed that Bulsara had come into the centre seeming very agitated. It didn't take a lot of digging to discover that Barry Bulsara was a fake name, used by a man claiming to be Queen frontman Freddie Bulsara, aka Freddie Mercury's cousin. DC Gallagher discovers that Barry Bulsara is in fact Barry George. And the call from the drop-in centre wasn't the only reference to Barry George in those early reports. A local taxi firm also called the police not long after the shooting to say that Barry George kept coming into their office around the time of the shooting. The taxi firm felt his behaviour was erratic and that he could have been trying to make an alibi for himself. George, it turns out, lives half a mile from Dando's house and was convicted of sexual assault back in the 1980s. He was also arrested in 1983, carrying a knife and a length of rope in the grounds of Kensington Palace, where Prince Charles and Princess Diana were living. George was stopped by police several times in the early 1990s for following women. So here's a local man with a propensity for stalking women whose name was given a couple of times early in the investigation. The team begins piecing together his whereabouts when the fatal shot was fired. Their first move is to pull him in for questioning, to establish if he has an alibi. Four unarmed officers go to arrest him at his home in Fulham. George claims that he wasn't in the street at the time of Jill's murder. He says that he visited the drop-in centre, returned home to change his clothes, stopped by the park and then went to get a taxi. With nothing conclusive to charge him on, the detectives release him and place him under surveillance while they dig deeper into his past and character. The police's social profilers have suggested the killer may be a man who lives in a fantasy world and who might have had difficulties in relationships before. Barry George certainly fits that profile. He is a bit of a loner. He lives largely in a fantasy world where he often presents himself as Paul Gadd, the real name of Gary Glitter. He's also known to some as SAS soldier Tom Palmer, one of the team that had ended the 1980 Iranian embassy siege. Police feel that his obsession with celebrity and his strange fantasies might have led him to feel he had a greater connection with Jill, one that could have ended in her death. Their investigation into his background also reveals numerous instances of stalking or harassing different women. 
with a history of following and photographing women, could he have taken his obsession all the way to murder? Everything the police team discovers about Barry George ticks another box on the list for the profilers. He becomes a prime suspect and is finally arrested on the 25th of May 2000, over a year after Jill's murder. It's after his arrest the police really begin to piece together a case against Barry George. His house is full to the rafters with old newspapers. Investigators can barely get in. The state of the house suggests a hoarding, compulsive nature. None of the newspapers have been highlighted, clipped, or stored in any kind of order. Just piles and piles of old paper. Importantly, among the clutter, police find several photographs of famous women. Pictures of television presenters like Anthea Turner, Karen Keating, and Fiona Foster all feature in his collection, as well as a list of female celebrities. The detectives feel this is a sure sign of obsession, and the strange collection is another mark against him. In their search of his flat, Scotland Yard also removes some personal effects too. Some items of clothing are confiscated, and a coat that he's worn is sent for forensic analysis. Though little of forensic value was found at the scene of Jill's murder, if the clothing in George's flat has any trace linking him to the scene, it may be the proof the detectives need. The team also takes away over 100 rolls of camera film to be developed. The hundreds of photos that emerge from those film reels show that George has stalked over 480 different women. Unfortunately for Scotland Yard, not a single photo of Jill Dando emerges among the photographs. Still, the secret pictures George took speak of a man obsessed with following women and forming some kind of bond with them. It's another hint towards a possible motive. Did he go out that morning with a modified gun in his pocket, wanting to make a connection with Jill? Ready to kill if she rejected him? Their background research shows that he has an interest in guns. He's been a member of a gun club in Kensington and owned a number of starter pistols. Though they don't have the weapon used in the murder, scientists' best guess is that it was some form of reactivated handgun. The search of his home reveals a photograph of George holding a handgun similar to the type which could have been used in Jill's murder. While George swears that he's had nothing to do with guns for a long time, a former neighbour also claims to have seen him brandishing a weapon. Detectives invite Barry George to be part of an identity parade in the hope that one of Jill's neighbours will recognise him as the man they saw leaving her home or loitering nearby. He declines to attend. Instead, they show the witnesses a number of photographs, including one of George. None of the witnesses picked Barry George out as the man they saw near Jill's house on the day of her shooting. But police still feel he is their prime suspect and are certain enough to arrest him. In his interviews, Barry George repeatedly denies knowing Jill Dando or having anything to do with her. He remains adamant that he never met her and certainly didn't kill her. Scotland Yard are convinced of his guilt, though, and continue to hold him, questioning him again about his fascination with guns, his stalker tendencies, and the women he has followed and assaulted before. But the forensic team is still working hard, and while he's in custody, the scientists provide the evidence the detectives need to get a conviction. They've thoroughly examined the coat and clothes that were removed from George's home. 
and they have found a tiny trace of firearms residue in the coat pocket. It's a microscopic trace, less than a half thousandth of an inch. The interesting fact about it is that it has exactly the same chemical composition as the bullet that killed Giordando. They also found a single fibre on the crime scene, which the scientists have now matched to a pair of trousers owned by Barry George. The police feel their job is done and the case for the prosecution is set. On the 29th of May 2000, Barry George is formally charged with the murder of Jill Dando. The investigation team feels sure they're about to get justice. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Barry George's arrest is welcomed by the press and public alike. It seems that the nation has been following the investigation from the outset, and the arrest of anyone after all this time is bound to cause a stir. But it feels as though the country breathes a sigh of relief, as though some kind of order has been restored. A line is drawn under the investigation, and as far as Scotland Yard are concerned, they have their man. Having arrested and charged Barry George with the murder of Jill Dando, it takes almost another year before the case finally comes to trial. When it does, the papers and news broadcasts are full of the story once more. A trial in the Old Bailey is daunting at the best of times. These old courts, where so many famous cases have been tried before, are both intimidating and impressive. The court is full of onlookers, both press and public. Barry George pleads not guilty. There is some concern from his defence team about George's ability to follow the case. He has very serious epilepsy and has recently been diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. As a result, he struggles with concentration. Throughout the trial, he sits with a psychiatrist to ensure that everything said is understood. The prosecution team presents George as a lone gunman with stalker tendencies. They go through the charges of sexual assault, the stack of photographs of hundreds of different women, the hoarding. It's all designed to show motive on George's behalf. His defense team, on the other hand, tried to show him as a vulnerable, confused man. They claim he's well known in the locality and he's not receiving the kind of help perhaps he needs to function well in society. Their key point is that he has an alibi for the time of the murder. They also strongly assert that he simply isn't capable mentally of committing a crime like this one. The prosecution's case hangs on tenuous forensic evidence. The single fibre from George's trousers and the microscopic trace of gunshot residue in his coat pocket 
The Defence Council produced witnesses to say that the residue cannot be considered conclusive in such minuscule amounts. They argued that the sample found could as easily have been the result of contamination in the lab. They also point out that there was no ballistics evidence found in George's flat. If he had a fascination with firearms, or if he'd been modifying weapons in his flat to use in a murder, as the prosecution claim, surely some evidence would have been found. Certainly, more than one tiny particle. The defense team feel this is their strongest argument. George's mental health aside, they feel the prosecution simply haven't provided enough evidence to secure a conviction. The prosecution team knows their physical evidence is weak and that their strength lies in the case they have built on George's personality and background. To the surprise of both counsels, the judge agrees that the evidence is circumstantial, but importantly, he deems it all admissible. The jury, made up of six women and five men, takes over 30 hours to reach a verdict, and even then it's not unanimous. With a majority of 10 to 1, they find Barry George guilty of the murder of Jill Dando. The judge, in sentencing him, said, Why you did it may never be known. It is probable you can give no rational explanation. What you did deprived her fiancé, family and friends of a much-loved and popular personality. On the 2nd of July 2001, Barry George is sentenced to life in prison. As far as Scotland Yard is concerned, it's job done. They've got a conviction for a high-profile murder thanks to forensic science and doggy detective work. Barry George's defense team are shocked, however. They feel that the police simply picked on a lone, vulnerable man whose ability to construct a crime like this was seriously compromised by his mental faculties. They claim that Barry George has been scapegoated and used as an easy target to get a conviction in a high-profile case because the police had run out of options. Barry George himself continues to protest his innocence, and many observers feel that the verdict is unsafe. While everyone wants justice done, there's a growing feeling that George has been wrongly convicted. As his defense team speak out about their concerns, a groundswell of support emerges for his case, and people begin to question whether a miscarriage of justice has occurred. The appeals process begins. Even with the growing support for his case, it takes a number of years before his defense team managed to mount an appeal and a campaign begins to get his conviction overturned. After eight years in prison, that appeal brings fresh forensic understanding to the case, casting enough doubt over the gunpowder traces and the single clothing fiber to warrant a retrial. The defense's argument here was that if the gunshot residue had been found earlier, say within a day or so after the shooting, it could have been admissible. But a year after the event? What validity could it hold then? Equally, the trousers Barry George wore were readily available and very common. How could the single fibre found be proved to belong to him? In August 2008, the forensic evidence is deemed unsafe and the subsequent retrial sees Barry George's conviction overturned. With the police accused, of simply arresting the nearest loner as a scapegoat for a crime they couldn't solve. So if it wasn't Barry George, who did kill Jill Dando? In 2008, a cold case review concluded 
that she'd been murdered by a professional assassin, though it wasn't established who that person may have been working for. In 2012, a further cold case review named Serbian warlord Arkan, a mobster, politician, and head of the Serbian paramilitary force, as a prime suspect. This was a theory which had been presented by journalists and by Barry George's defence team at the time of the original trial. Back in 1999, at the time of Jill's death, the UK and NATO were involved in the Kosovo War, opposing Serbia. Apparently, immediately after Jill's death, the BBC and other media outlets had received calls claiming responsibility for her murder on behalf of Serb groups. The calls weren't deemed credible and were dismissed as hoaxes. Nonetheless, George's barrister brought them up in trial, where he said that Jill's appearance in an appeal for Kosovan refugees may have brought her to the attention of extremists. The appeal had aired on television only three weeks before her murder. In a 2012 review, the National Crime Intelligence Service reported that it had given evidence to the original investigation that the murder was in retaliation for the bombing of the RTS building in Belgrade. The report also highlighted a connection between the bullet used to kill Jill and those used in similar assassinations in Germany. Similar markings were found on each of the bullets. Finally, they reported that Slavko Kurovija, an opposition journalist, had been shot outside his house in Belgrade just a few days before Jill's murder. The method of assassination was identical. The 2012 review concluded that Jill Dando's murder had been ordered by the Serbian warlord Arkan. Unfortunately, Arkan had died by that time, so nothing more could come of that either. In the end, Jill Dando's murder remains unsolved despite countless hours of investigation and relentless pursuit of the truth. Perhaps her celebrity went against the police's ability to follow the truth. Had she been less famous, perhaps she wouldn't have been moved by first responders, which may have meant that other forensic evidence would have been found. If there hadn't been such a national interest in her murder, maybe fewer names would have been thrown into the hat as a suspect. The only truth is that her killing was senseless and brutal. She was snuffed out in her prime with no rational explanation, and her murder will remain one that puzzles Scotland Yard. Whether she was killed by a stalker or was the victim of an assassination, we may never know. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential, it's late summer in 1849, and a dockyard worker named Patrick O'Connor has gone missing. Two officers of the new Metropolitan Police find his body buried in quicklime underneath the kitchen flagstones of a vacated residential house in Bermondsey. What follows is a highly publicized hunt for two killers, a husband and wife that will capture the imagination of Victorian England as cutting edge communication technology helps detectives to track the fugitives across the country.
Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Buaro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by Sean Coleman. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matthias Torres-Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Jacob Booth. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. An alien invasion, nuclear warfare, the second coming. How will the world end? Will we be prepared? And will it matter? This December, join Unexplained Mysteries for a five-part doomsday special examining the many theories about humanity's ultimate demise. We're counting down to the end of the year with the most infamous end-of-the-world scenarios of all time. Listen to the Unexplained Mysteries five-part Doomsday Special, free and only on Spotify.